This is Derek Robertson, and you're listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Well, we have one of those new talking machines. Now that is something. It plays music right here in our home. Progress is something we can't take for granted. Progress takes a lot of people wanting it and willing to work for it. You are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show... Back when I had a paper out, the way that people paid for their paper was this 12-year-old boy, which is me, walked around to your house at 7, rang your doorbell, and asked you for your money. So, like, I'd have a bag, like a blue bag full of cash, walking around in the dark at night through a town. Like, that's crazy. (laughs) Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Sherry Sondheimer. Welcome to another episode of the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com. You can find us on the socials at thegbbpodcast. I am Jamie Green. You can find me everywhere at The Roarbots. And I am Sherry. And you can find me on Twitter at SW Sondheimer and on Instagram at irate underscore Corvus. Um, I wanted to start off with a little bit of an announcement. And I didn't even talk, which Sherry and I didn't talk about this beforehand, but I'm going to um, I guess mentioned that over on the Roarbots, we've we've mentioned this a few times that we have expanded and we've gotten new writers and a new design and the site is growing and we're very very excited. But we've also launched a uh, Roarbots podcast network, as people tend to do when they have more than one show. So right now it is this show and it is another show, the Bodaciously Awesome Family Show, which is a bodaciously awesome name. Um, it is Adam. And his kids, and they basically, they just talk about fun, awesome stuff they do as a family, and they give ideas to other families. But we are going to be launching a third show this week, which is going to be exciting. I'm not going to announce it just yet. I'll talk about it next week on this show. But we are, right now, we are three shows strong, and I am in discussions with a couple other shows about coming on. So big, exciting things are happening. If you want to go check it out, go head on over to theroarbots.com. And uh, along the banner there, you'll see one little option there that says Robots Podcast Network, and you can just pull down and check out all the shows. Uh, And it's exciting. And go hit subscribe to everybody and follow us, and you'll have your ear holes filled with good stuff. But uh, until next week, when I talk about those shows in specifics, we are here this week with Shiri, and we talk to Scotty Young. We did. That was huge. I love Scotty Young. I think Scotty is one of the people, when you first started coming on as co-host, you're like, if you ever get Scotty Young, I'm in. I'm talking to him. He's one of my favorite artists. And, you know, they say that sometimes you should not meet your heroes because yes. it doesn't go well. But Scotty was absolutely delightful. He was so much fun to talk to. He really was. And it, it, we, we've said this before. You never quite know how these interviews are going to go. Like, you can listen to other interviews that they've given. You can... Um, you can read interviews, you can watch them, you can listen to them. And so you kind of get a feel for whether they're chatty or whether they're reserved or funny or or the kind of personality they have. But you never really know how it's going to go until you get on on the line with them. Uh, and I'm happy to say that the the time we had with Scotty was just an absolute delight. Yeah, and, and especially, you know, when the artist is, especially artists um, mm. who tend to be a little more introverted than a lot of writers um, and and artists who are known to have chosen to live in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> as he does. Um, but he he really was he really was delightful. Um, yes, enough of gushing about him personally. We talked to him because he has a new book out with Image Middle West, which he actually is not arting. He is writing. He's not arting. <laughs> <laughs> he he is writing, which um, uh, he is seeming to do more of um, in more recent years. Well, Jorge Corona is doing the art for Middle West. Yes. And when we spoke to Scotty, 
the first issue was just about to come out. So mm-hmm. that just gives you an idea for how long we've been sitting on some of these episodes. Sorry. <laughs> um, and this week sees the release of the fourth issue. So if you've been following along, with, if you're a regular comics reader and you've been picking up the series, you know that it's fairly awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but just letting you know that the things we talk about in our discussion really were limited to the first issue because that's all we had to go on. So don't be like screaming at your phone or, or car radio or whatever that we, you know, we didn't know something that was revealed in, in issues two or three or four uh, because we didn't have it. And I've been sitting on this episode for a long time. Think of it as spoiler free. <laughs> spoiler free. Unless you haven't read the series at all, in which case, what are you doing? Right. But uh, do you want to give the people, the good people, a sort of synopsis of, uh, well, of, of what Middle West is about or, or, or a feel for what the world entails? Well, Jamie and I both sort of got a twisted Oz is going to sound really weird because Oz is pretty twisted, but this goes way beyond that. Um, a, a young man whose mother is gone. We're not really sure what happened to her. Uh, she's not dead. She's not there. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he does not get along with his father. His father is kind of a jerk. Uh, they live out in the middle of what, in what many of us, especially those of us who are, are coastal livers would call flyover country. And there's a lot of, of big emotions involved in his relationship with his father. And these big emotions sort of suck him into this, other world with his um, fox. He yeah. has a fox who goes. The, sto- his, his fo- the storm of emotions that erupts from his father turn into a real storm. An actual tornado. Um, yeah. And he and his his fox, who is co- his companion who talks, because mm-hmm. talking animals are sort of essential rule. to these because sort they of. They rule. They do rule. And they're also kind <laughs> of essential to these sort of journeys. Um, who is very snarky. If you have read I Hate Fairyland, um, the fox is sort of a, a family-friendly-ish version of the fly that travels around with Gert. Um, get sucked through this storm into an alternate version of the Midwest. Yes. Where there are scary creatures and wizards and steampunk trains. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and it's all kind of, so far, from what we saw so far, all kind of manifestations of this of this boy's emotions in various ways. Right. So that's Middle West. And we talk about that primarily because that's his newest book out right now. And that's, and that's what's on the shelves. But we do talk about a number of other things. He, had a, he has a pretty interesting um, story about how he quote unquote broke into comics. He had sort of like the dream scenario for a lot of young artists. He just had a table at a comic con and and somebody from Marvel happened to come by and like his art and one thing led to another. So we talk about his, his road to becoming a professional artist. We talk about the, some of the other books that he's done in the past. It's interesting because if you know him, you know, his style of art. And we talk about how that style pigeonholed him unfairly at the beginning of his career because so many people saw his art and just assumed he was a children's artist Mm -hmm. or that he wrote for little kids or or drew for little kids. So breaking out of that, I think, without abandoning his style was a challenge. Uh, And we talk a little bit about that. We'll talk quite a bit about that, actually. But it's interesting, too, because if you do know his art, you know that even when he does do books for children, there's another layer under that. Right. That is very much for adults. Um, A couple of years ago, he did this little X-Men versus Little Avengers book. That was for kids. We got it for my kids. But reading it as an adult, there's this additional layer underneath what's for children that um, is definitely for adults. So. Well, what's ironic is that he had this challenge at the beginning of his career to to say like, "Hey, I might have this quote unquote cutesy style, but I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to be pigeonholed to this children's art niche." But then, you know, X number of years later, he does baby Marvel covers for every right. single book. So he he figured out a way to use that style to his definite advantage. So more power to him. And it's also, <laughs> you know, it's a great way to do satire. Again, I've mentioned yeah. it a few times, but if you have seen I Hate Fairyland, um, you know, he uses the art versus the 
the dialogue and the storyline as this great sort of satire on fairy tales. Yeah. Well, we're going to shut up. We're going to get into our conversation. Again, Scotty, if you're listening, I'm sorry I'm sad. I sat on this for so long. Uh, I have a lot of interviews in the can. So if any of you out there in listener land are not already subscribed, please hit subscribe because we have a lot more to come. Uh, I, I currently have enough interviews for the next like seven, eight weeks, uh, just in the can, sitting, ready, waiting to go. So we have a lot of great stuff coming. I can promise you that because I, I know what it is. And um, hit subscribe, come back week after week. We love to have you. We love to hear from you. Uh, until next week, I am Jamie Green. You can find me at The Roarbots. You can find the show at The GBB Podcast. And I'm Sherry, and you can find me at SW Sondheimer on Twitter and at irate underscore Corvus um, on Instagram. And uh, we will have some stuff coming up from Emerald City Comic Con on social media. So, yay! So, follow, follow us everywhere for that. And uh, that'll be exciting because the con season is just now ramping up. So we will have some good stuff coming your way. Until then, take care. And here's our conversation with Scotty Young. Your, you know, reading up on you, your how I broke into comics story is sounds to me like pretty much the dream scenario that a lot of young artists have. Um, you were just, you had a table at a Comic-Con and somebody from Marvel saw you and one thing led to another and now here we are. Was it really as simple as that? <laughs> I doubt it. Well, well it wasn't, it wasn't um, somebody from Marvel, it, 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 actually it was, it was C.B. Sobolski who later went to Marvel. Right. Um, but at the time was, was doing his own kind of independent book publishing at Image. Um, and was just looking for young artists to kind of pitch books to image with. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a little bit that, I mean, and, and, you know, that's, that's the simple part of how it all happened afterwards. But, you know, just like anything, there is a lot of waiting to see if you, this would happen or if that would happen and, and, you know, hustling and not yeah. being able to pay rent and all, all the, all the fun stuff that comes along with, you know, thinking that you're going to be, make a living being an artist. Yeah. Is that a realistic scenario, do you think, for people? Like, can can artists still expect to be, quote-unquote, found by, by just tabling at a show? Um, I just, yeah, I, I guess. I think there's just no real, there's no real thing that's possible or impossible, really. It's, it, I don't, I find that with anything, there's really no rules. I know that we like to all kind of figure out uh, a rhyme or reason to things and, and uh, you know, a method to the madness, but really... I find like every day in all of our lives, it's pretty much we're all making making shit up as we go along. Yeah, pretty and, much. Um, you know, I, I I have definitely found people walking around at conventions and lo- love their stuff and pass them along to somebody else, and and somebody might ho- hook up with them or you know where I I liked a book and I mean r- right now I'm doing a book with Aaron Conley and that was kind of like I heard about him on a podcast and then met him at a convention and. You know, and decided then, like, oh, one day I want to do a book with with this guy. So, yeah, I, I absolutely think that you know you're never going to be hurt by putting yourself out there or you know exposing yourself out, out out in the world. Well, and some of the cons have those formal portfolio review sessions now, right? Uh, yeah, you know, I guess depending on the show and the company and all that, for sure. Yeah. Um. I wanted to I wanted to talk a little bit about your art and your style before we dive into you know the the book that you're working on right now. But you have a, a I guess I could say it, it's an immediately recognizable style. I mean, you look at a piece and you'd be like, oh yeah, that that's Scotty Young, um, and it's completely different than a lot of the other art we see in comics and graphic novels today. I mean, when you were f- new to the industry or just starting out, did you find that that was an advantage or a disadvantage? Um. I, I mean, both at times it was, a. I think it was a real advantage on, I think it was a real advantage on the side of, of the line that involved. Um, I mean, I'm going to say fans, but at the time I wouldn't have considered them fans. Cause I was just, you know, just, just like anybody else, like on the internet trying to show off my work. So, um, but you know, as far as like people who would be into my work, obviously I think that was a big bonus because, you know, if, if if you are you, if you are into a certain kind of look or style, and and I fit and I check that box for you, then you're going to be able to come back to me a lot. Um, on the other hand, you know, it it it, it definitely pigeonholed me sometimes, or um, 
you know, definitely took me out of the running for a decent amount of books that, that I just didn't, you know, that my style wouldn't fit. Um, which, you know, in my early days used to frustrate me, but as I got older, I realized like, Oh, that that's okay. I kind of don't want those books anyway. <laughs> they, don't, they don't fit me, you know, like those were just books I thought I was supposed to get to, to, you know, to climb the ladder in comics. Yeah. And then at some point you just realize like, Oh, well, climbing the ladder in comics is not really my goal. It's the, you know, tell stories and tell the stories that I fit on. Yeah. Is it something that is the style something that developed naturally or did you intentionally try to find a style that would set you apart? Um, It was a little of both, I guess. I think there was, um, you know, at the beginning, I was always drawn to really stylized artists, you know, so guys like Joe Mad and and Chris Pacello and Umberto Ramos and Bill Sienkiewicz and Sam Keith and, um, you know, all these really kind of outside the box artists, you know, that didn't, to me, didn't draw like your typical, um, not, and I'm not using the word typical in, in a bad way. I'm just saying they didn't draw in the, in the, in the traditional style that you would, you think of when you think of superhero comics. Right. And those were always the things that I was drawn to because I grew up, you know, reading Mad Magazine and grew up reading comic strips and things like that. So, I was very, very much into cartooning more than I was just straight up, you know, anatomy driven superhero comics. Um, so really it just came from like, you know, imitating what you, what you like. Um, and then eventually out of that, you start shedding, um, you know, you start shedding some of those crutches that you, you have where you're leaning on your influences too much. And, and somewhere, somewhere in there, my own version of things, you know, kind of came out of it. So, um, it starts where you're trying, like for me, it started where I was trying too hard to, to have a style because all my favorite people were very stylized. So I'm going to really try and at times it didn't feel very natural and it felt a little forced. Um, and then somewhere along the lines, you know, without me thinking about it, it or maybe the less I thought about it, it kind of, it kind of started to surface or, or rise to the surface a little bit. So I, I often say, you know, there's a big question of like how you get your own style. And really it's just like, I don't know, wait, wait for it to present itself to you. <laughs> Do you have, did you go to art, art school or are you primarily self-trained? Yeah, no art school for me. It was all just, you know, buying comic books, drawing all the time. Um, you know, then when the internet kind of, you know, I'm old enough to, 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 you know, have been here pre-internet. <laughs> and, 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 okay. <laughs> so, you, know, you, you guys remember, you know, there was a time where like literally, you know, figuring out how to draw something meant, you know, I, I would get in a car, drive three hours to a, to a bookstore, you know, three hours away in hopes that I might find a book that I don't even know exists, you know, um, which is, you know, now crazy because these, I, I, these young people now are so talented because they just have <laughs> access to so much information. It's awesome. Um, so yeah, for me, it was just about, it was just hunting for the next thing and drawing a lot. That, that was really my schooling. Did you, you mentioned that, um, you know, your art kind of not only set you apart, but kind of pulled you out of the running for some of those books earlier in your career. Did you have, did you find that, was it just the stylized nature of your art or did you also kind of leave the impression that you were maybe for kids or for a younger audience? Um, I don't know that it was necessarily that in in the early days, it wasn't necessarily who was for kids or who wasn't. It was a lot more of the industry, not, you know, again, manga hadn't really, manga was just starting to explode here. And even though I, I was never influenced by manga and never really had read it much, um, because I was kind of, you know, quote unquote cartoony, um, a lot of people just, they, they were like, well, it doesn't look like John Byrne, so it must be manga, right? <laughs> so it was like, so there's a lot of weird kind of categorization that went on in those early days where it's like, well, I don't really know what to call you, so I think it's manga. Um, so it's not like it, it, it wasn't that people were going, this is for kids. They were just going like, this isn't for comics or whatever. So it's like, this is too cartoony or this is too whatever. Um, I mean, I definitely heard that phrase uh, a lot in my life. I, I think I almost made an art book once, like one of my sketchbooks. I was almost just going to just call them cartoony volume one. <laughs> too cartoony. <laughs> volume two. Um, which clearly now, now that I'm the, that I'm the, <laughs> that I'm almost so like somehow backed into primarily being known as the baby cover guy. It's hilarious that at one point in my life, you know, <laughs> that was actually a deterrent for people. 
<laughs> I would buy that. Um, <laughs> so moving on to um, Middle West, which is the book that you're doing for Image right now. Yeah. Um, the all-knowing internet, as you've mentioned, so much information. Um, <laughs> you you grew up in the Midwest, it tells me, um, and yep. you've you've lived there most of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of the story in that book is is yours? What's the appeal of turning what those of us on either side of it uh, tend to uh, refer to as flyover country into? this magical land? Um, you know, I think that, I mean, there's a, there's definitely a good deal of this book that um, is, you know, uh, comes from um, real experiences, real moments, whether they're mine or whether they're people that I know or, um, you know, just variations on that. Um, and, you know, I've always thought... It's like anything, you, the place that you grow up, you want to leave and you want to get away from. And I, I did for a while. And, you know, we we, we spent I, I lived in Tennessee for a while in high school and came back. And then, um, you know, I lived in Chicago. Me and my wife lived in Chicago for 10 years. Um, and then we went back to central Illinois. And, you know, now we're in Kansas, you know, still in the Midwest. Um, and as I get older, you, know, you, 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 you gain a different kind of appreciation for this place. Um, but you also start understanding some of the, the weirdness of it. Um, so for me, you know, a lot of the stuff that I, that, that was interesting to me about Midwest or Middle West and kind of using the Midwest and, and as a, as a, not just a setting, but just a kind of a tone of, of, of the world is it's, it, it is a place that's very wide open. It's a place that's filled with a lot of very small towns that doesn't have a lot of money that don't have a lot of money. They don't have a lot of, um, you know, they're kind of a little bit behind. Um, and a lot of people are just struggling to get by and there's not, you know, unless you're a farmer or, you know, in, in early, in their early days in Southern Illinois, you know, there was coal mines and those dried up. So you have a lot of towns that existed on that and it would, that would end and you'd have factories here that would get bought up and, and, you know, pulled into another thing, or you've got up in Michigan, you, you know, the car industry that's, you know, ebbed and flowed over, you know, over the years. So there's all these weird things that happen in the Midwest that really affect um, the day-to-day life of people. Um, and that weighs on people, that weighs on parents, that weighs on families and kids. And um, when you're a kid, sometimes you don't know why there's such a weight happening around around you or you're in, over at your friend's house or in your own house. Um, so it's an, I think it's an interesting place of the world or a place in the United States, at least, um, because of just how big it is and the kind of jobs and industries that we have going on here, which is a lot of agriculture. You know, you have, you have basically small businesses that exist of a house in the middle of a giant field. Um, you know, and that, 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 you know, that one family works that field, that's the job, that's the industry for, for it's, so it's a very strange place. And that creates a kind of quietness, it creates sometimes a, a little bit of a let's push some things down. We don't really talk about this kind of thing. There's also, to me, you know, and th- these are all my views. I, I'm definitely not um, saying this is the definitive. <laughs> this is the definitive way that I think the world views this place, but it's the it's the world that I grew up in. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of masculinity that takes place in some of the kind of jobs that happen here, you know, like very, like I said, very factory driven jobs, very big agricultural jobs where men are out, out in the fields and driving big combines and harvesting crops. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, quote unquote man like jobs. And, and, and so there's a, there's an, uh, there's an interesting um, look at, I think, masculinity and what that means and what that happens to when you get, start passing that down to, to your kids and um, over generations and what, what all that means. So I think all that stuff combined is really what made, made it interesting for me to, you know, take a story that, you know, that, uh, you know, take a cool the story that usually you might see, you know, set in New York or, you know, set in L.A. or somewhere a lot more lavish on the outside, I think there's a there's a weird mystery to the, the vast wide openness in the Midwest that adds a little bit of creepiness to life, I think, sometimes. That's so interesting to me, especially because I live in I live in Pittsburgh and I'm a transplant here mm-hmm. from from New England. So 
not only do I see that part of it, but I also live in the part of the country where it starts to transition over to the East Coast. Oh, of course so not. It's, it's not. It's this double transition area. It's fascinating, right? right? Yeah, it's a really interesting place. And I mean, even, even, you know, again, I don't know, I'm older now, so I don't, you know, it's, I, I know some of these things aren't the same, but even when we were young, you know, because of the nature of the, the jobs around here, I mean, you know, Abel in the Middle West is a paper boy, and that was definitely my job. And I had that job from such a young age, you know, mid, you know, halfway through, through elementary school, I got that job and held that job up through middle school or, you know, junior high. So, you know, I did, I woke up every morning at 4, 4.30 as a kid, like a young kid, you know, 10, yeah. 10 11 years old. <laughs> I'm up at 4.30 in the morning riding my bike around a town, and I'm making, you know, like a couple dollars an hour doing it, <laughs> uh, you know, which is crazy now that you think back. like the And, and then, you know, uh, something that we're going to get to later in this book is, you know, there was other jobs in the Midwest, especially in Illinois, where corn, um, corn in, is such a big, big thing. Um, you know, there was detasseling where kids would all summer long, you know, put on jeans and long sleeve shirts and gloves and walk fields and, you know, put the tassels off corn stalks, um, you know, to, to help, you know, finish off the, the crops those years. And I mean, it was just a nasty terrible job that kids did you know that you know junior high junior high level kids did again for little very little money um which you know these just aren't things that happen when you live in a little bit more metropolitan area um so it's these are weird jobs that are like really really underpaid and kind of given to you know kids you know young kids who who probably are helping their families out um, paying for things and it, it builds a kind of certain, I don't know, I'm not saying it builds a bad or good person, but it definitely builds a person when you're doing these <laughs> kind of things and there's this weight of responsibility and, and those kind of things. So yeah, it's, it's really weird the kind of mentality that happens when you're out here in, the, in, in a much more, um, you know, these, these jobs that wouldn't exist if you're in the more metropolitan places. Well, it's funny. I mean, every time I see a paperboy in a book or a movie or a show, it kind of it brings me back. I grew up in New Jersey, so not the Midwest, but I also had I had a paper route. You know, I mean, I grew up in the '80s. That was the thing that kids yeah. did is of that course. you had a paper route, and that's just not something that kids do nowadays. And right. you know, like you're saying, it builds a certain kind of person, or it gives you, you know, as, as you're building characters, definitely it helps you define that character. But just even as as people in the real world. Um, right. It was sort of a rite of passage that so many kids went through is that you had your paper route after school or before school or yeah. on the weekend. And nobody's doing that now. And I'm wondering, like, if you as somebody who had a paper route and I had a paper route and I'm sure, you know, a lot of listeners had paper routes. Is that something that kids are missing out on nowadays or they have has it been replaced with something else? Because I don't um, I don't know what it would have been replaced by. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I definitely think. You know, we, we, me and my friends here just had this conversation yesterday because all, all of our kids, you know, we're all parents now. So all of our kids are, you know, so obsessed with their devices, right? Their screens, which we are too. I'm not, you know, I'm not like, I'm not sitting there casting fingers. I'm not, I'm sitting on my iPad or iPhone at all times as well, usually. But, um, you know, these kids today are, you know, our kids are, they are so obsessed with screen time um, that, you know, they really don't even know the concept of the fact that, you know, at the same age that they were, that we had actual jobs. Um, they will literally, if we take over the screens away and talk about how bored they are and they cannot, they're just like, there's nothing right. to do. There's literally nothing to do. And then we are like, well, if I could tell you what I did at your very age right now, <laughs> you know, I would have been up since four. Yeah. I would have spent two hours on my bike. And, you know, again, I know this sounds cliche, but it was, it was the central Illinois. So it would have been 20 below. It would have been at least two feet of snow at all times. Um, you know what I mean? Which is not a fun way to spend yeah. four thirty in the morning before school. And that's you know, and then I played basketball, so there'd be basketball practice after that. So it's like all these kind of things that we were we were kind of thrust into responsibility. Now, again, I don't know if that's good or bad. Um, I think that's really dependent on the, the kid in which it's doing it, because sometimes I definitely feel like I felt like I was too filled filled with responsibility. You know, like Sometimes I'm like, God, I wish I could have just been a kid, um, you know, and then not having a job, you know, like right? I know. Working. But you know, there's, um, so yeah, I don't, I don't see, 
I don't see that happening. I mean, I also look back and think, God, I, I can't believe sometimes that at the age that I was that I, that some company and my parents <laughs> let me walk around town like at you know at seven o'clock at night with a bag full of money collecting money (laughs) that's how you know now we have credit cards and all this is auto auto paid but people don't realize like back when i had a paper out the way that people paid for their paper was this 12 year old boy which was me walked around to your house at seven rang your doorbell and asked you for your money so like i'd have a bag like a blue bag full of cash like walking around in the dark night through a town like that's crazy <laughs> it's like, um so now i think it's probably like at some point probably like well there's kids doing this probably isn't the safest probably that wasn't the best idea in retrospect but <laughs> right and again i guess that just goes to what you know i lived in a traditional small town i mean i lived in one of these towns i had three thousand people everybody knew everybody it was a mile wide and a mile long you know um, we had no stoplight. I mean, it's, you know, one grocery store. We, you know, it was all, it was all those cliches wrapped into one. So having a paper out there was safe. Yeah. Um, and that's another thing that, you know, the, and one of the things that I'm obviously exploring in the Middle West is, um, is the other thing is when you grow up in one of these towns, you know, I lived on the edge of town for a while. I lived in the country for a while, but then for the most part, I lived on the edge of town, which is like when you walked out of my backyard to the edge of my neighborhood, you just look, it was just surrounded by cornfields and then you couldn't see anything past that. So it was in the winter, it just really looked like there was nothing in the world. Like it was just, we lived in this little town in the middle of nothing. Um, and it, and for as far as I, your eye could see is nothing. So just be snow. It just looked like Hoth, right? So you're just like, Oh, I live, <laughs> we're the only town that exists. And then you just, that's a weird mentality to be in over the, over the years. And so that's another thing, you know, that, that hopefully if, you know, if, if we're successful at this, uh, in, in doing this in the book is showing what it's like for a kid who's only existed in kind of this small little space and and you know he's going to get out and see that there's a world beyond you know the the little borders of his, his small town and what that means for somebody who is super happy at home or um, you know what kind of other things are, are out in the world for him that could either hurt him or fulfill him you know yeah well, I mean, that leads me. I was wondering, just reading the first two issues, it feels like Middle West as a world is much bigger than this small town mentality that you were talking about. So, I mean, how how big is it that it, it, do you envision? How big is Middle West? The place, not the book. Yeah, well, Middle West, you know, the, and I guess in our minds, and we're trying to we're trying to really walk a line where we don't. I don't. I, I'm a kind of person that doesn't want everybody. I don't want people to tell me everything. I like I like the mystery of things, right? Like I like when you re- read or watch the never-ending story, they'll mention things, right. you know, and they're like, oh, you need to go see the Southern Oracle. They don't really then go like, oh, the Southern Oracle is this, and this right. is why it is, and it is this. You just realize, oh, there's a history there, and these people in the world, or, you know, Lord of the Rings is another good example, you know, where it's like these places are mentioned, and this mountain's mentioned, and everybody's aware of it, and they don't, they don't, tell you exactly how far away it is and you don't you know so these are these are things that we're kind of doing as well where in my in my mind the middle west is similar to what the midwest is it's a mm-hmm. region in a world um and we won't know i kind of want the reader to you know able is the reader's end to the story so uh, you will kind of feel the world as big as able thinks it is at, at any given moment and as he experiences it and realizes that it's much bigger so will we and 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 in some ways as the writer i'm learning how big it is you know yeah. as i'm going along i mean i have i definitely have i know where it's going i know where the end is and i know beats where we're heading but you know as as me and jorge are walking through this world you know things are occurring and we're like oh here's another facet or here's another town or here's another thing that we're going to we're going to, we're going to take them to. So, um, uh, yeah, it's, like I said, I think it's, it's very much, it's very much, um, uh, a big region in a, maybe a, a much larger world, but in the in way that, you know, when we even categorize the Midwest, I think it's, I honestly think we should probably chop it up a little more. <laughs> it's, it's huge. <laughs> Cause I think like Illinois is not really West at all. Right. But it's still like, I'd say Illinois and Michigan and Indiana are still like some of the places that we consider the most Midwest, even though it's starting to feel like 
we're probably closer to East Coast than we are anything, <laughs> just dead center. Um, anyway, that's all logistics. But and, uh, Jorge's from, is he from Venezuela? Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, yes. Which also has a certain amount of that wide open space, although it's maybe a little hillier. What, uh, yeah, I think so, because he's, yeah, he, like, while it's not the same one-to-one, he's definitely was still familiar with some of that, um, that, like you said, that big openness type stuff. So that's working for you guys together, even though it's a different sort yeah, of he, wide open. Yeah, I'm so, I am so impressed and, and I'm so impressed with how he's been able to really, um, you know, dive into this and, and, and really understand understand the region of it and you know we spent some time before we really dove in and i i had a lot of folders of a lot of things um you know laced in where you know like here's a lot of farmland and here's a lot of barns and here's a lot of how it is and um but somehow i don't know what it is and, and you know sometimes you got some at some point you guys will have to talk to Jorge because he's he's amazing as well and a really smart really really smart thoughtful artist um and a great storyteller in his own right um so he, he, I'm just really impressed with how he was able to step outside of, you know, where he had, where he has come from, um, and and really just make it feel like he's so familiar with the Midwest. It's pretty amazing. You mentioned um, Neverending Story, which is interesting because you know we've we've talked to a lot of writers and and artists and storytellers recently, and a trend that we're seeing in was popular in the 80s, which we were talking about, is putting kids at the center of these big adventures or horrors or fantasy horror, um, right. you know, genres that maybe in recent years hadn't seen that many kid protagonists. Right. Why do you think that's sort of gaining popularity again? Well, because all the people telling the stories now are all the kids. Yeah. Are, are they, <laughs> you know, we were all the kids that grew up with that, right? Like everything's cyclical in that, like, it, you know, it's... Um, You'll you'll notice um, you'll notice when uh, like watch a television show and then see like all of a sudden you're like oh my god they're playing this old KRS One song or they're you know they're, they're playing this old uh, Fugazi song or whatever right it's because like we're at the age now where we run that shit yeah <laughs> so <laughs> if I grew up listening to Redman and EPMD and, and a KRS One then I'm probably gonna try to find some way to like lace that into the soundtrack. Because that's you know that's where I come from, um, and it's going to be the, you know the same or whatever with any other genre of music that you're into. And you look at that, and I I see that as thing is I think it's a big reason why all of a sudden you're seeing a real big resurgence of Stephen King, um, because uh, you know I, I'm 40 and we I, I find like you know the age group surrounding my age group is like the prime time uh, prime time Stephen King era of you know. He uh-huh. was, his biggest books were coming out around then, and all of his books were being adapted into movies around that around that ten year period. So, like my generation, I just felt like we were so inundated with Stephen King, um, and you know, we were the generation that got the ETs, and we were the generation who got the Goonies and the Monster Squads. And so, it's no wonder that when we start being the people who are in charge of making shows and movies, that we're getting Stranger Things, and yeah. that we're it and we're you know what I mean and, and we're telling these stories because we grew up with those um it's no different than Peter Jackson you know wanting to do Lord of the Rings and following that up directly with King Kong you know it's like he's now he's in a position where he gets to do what he wants to do and what he wants to do is the things that he loved when he was a kid um so definitely, I think it's just a nod back to where we all came from. You know? That's so funny because when my husband and I went to see Aquaman, we got a preview for the new Pet Cemetery, right. And I looked at it and I was like, what the shit? That movie was not even good the first time. Why are you making another one? And that's the answer. <laughs> yeah, it's right there. It's like, it's it's really right there. It's just, we're just like, we're all reliving our childhood. And uh, it's... It, some of it should have just died. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I think Pet Cemetery was the second Stephen King book I ever read in like the fourth grade, and I loved it. I don't really remember if it was good, but I remember loving it. Well, I love the book. I said people should just read the book, and like everyone who was sitting around us who was our age, which is forty, just like busted out laughing and was like, "Yeah." <laughs> Yeah, the book was definitely good. I mean, it was the same thing. If you go back and watch the the old It miniseries, it's it's virtually unwatchable. I mean, with the with the exception of the fact that like Tim Curry is like crazy, creepy looking as as Pennywise, it's still a pretty terrible movie. Um, but the like the new one, I'm I'm like super in on. 
But uh, yeah, it's I, I, again, if you if somebody said like, oh, do you want to make some stuff? I like, oh yeah, like give me the reins to make, you know, like the Dark Crystal or remake the Labyrinth. I'm doing a heartbeat, right? Like even though I love the Labyrinth, but it's like, oh well, if I could just go make the Labyrinth again, that'd be amazing. <laughs> so back to Middle West, though. Yeah. Why a fox? Um, I wanted to. I wanted to um, have an animal that we've all, um, I mean, I wanted, you know, I wanted able to have his Jiminy cricket. Right. But I wanted an animal that could be all the things, you know, cause I didn't want it's where Jiminy cricket is Pinocchio's conscious, you know, and kind of always reminding him to do the right thing or, or always challenging him to do the right thing. Fox is definitely more, um, a, a, a mirror of life and not just of somebody's conscience. And, and by that, I mean, he's not there just to say, Hey, here's the right thing. He's saying like, sometimes this is the world and here is the necessary thing. Um, or reluctant, you know, or, or uh, unfortunately this is the necessary thing or, Hey, try this out and we'll see if you get in trouble. Well, oops, you know? And I think that a Fox we've all been through, through, through various storytelling. And I know each culture has their different ties to what, what a Fox represents but i think here in america and especially the midwest you know we've you know we've got you've got uh you know foxes are very very prominent here and they're really uh swift little sneaky animals um that you know can hide pretty easily and weave in and out of things uh travel great distances and and then you know we also have all the preconceived notions of what what foxes are you know the sly as a fox and they look they just have like a sneaky look about them um that you you feel like as cute as they are they're always kind of maybe up to something as well and so i just wanted to take a lot of those things that we already have i think in storytelling it's always a good idea to to take some things that we have um we all have in our minds and let you do some of the work as the reader right sure so if I create a fox, then I know that you as a reader are going to, you're going to do a little bit of that work on your own and realize like, oh yeah, you know, foxes are they're kind of sneaky. They're kind of conniving. I've, I've watched Pinocchio when I was a kid and the fox is, you know, a fox is one of the characters that got Pinocchio in trouble. Yeah. And, you know, or, um, you know, uh, you know, Robin Hood was a fox in the Disney movies and he was a little bit of a bandit. You know, like there's, there's all these kind of things that we grew up with that a fox is tied to. And so that was a little bit of my thinking there. Um, and then, you know, of course, when Jorge drew the fox, I was just head over heels. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's such a, it's such a cool fox design. And I'm just like, oh my God, it's amazing. Well, and you do write, you do write the most phenomenal animal conscience slash sidekicks i mean between this little fox dude and the fly and uh <laughs> i hate fairyland <laughs> are really some of my favorite characters in comics right now <laughs> thank you so much i it's it's funny i realized it wasn't until i started doing interviews with middle west where i was where i started to realize like oh man i'm i'm kind of obsessed with sidekick characters because i mean in a lot of ways groot you know i wrote rocket and groot and that was pretty much that um, you know, which was, which was, which, which was rocket with a, with a, with a sidekick. And then, you know, Gert had Larry and, and, uh, then I gave Fox to Abel and, um, and even in Deadpool, like, you know, Negasonic teenage warhead <laughs> I threw her in there as like a little bounce off, you know, and, and, um, yeah. And really what it comes down to is that, you know, you're going to spend a lot of time with a character and you don't always want them to have to be interacting with somebody plot wise. Um, but you need to be able to you need to be able to 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 explore some of their thought processes that isn't just about with a stranger or somebody moving the plot forward. And so, yeah, it always helps. But yeah, I, I appreciate that you uh, that you 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 appreciate those. <laughs> <laughs> so I've also noticed, um, and you know, I do watch I do watch some anime and I read a fair number of comics. Um, that sort of plague doctor imagery seems to be making a comeback on a cycle as well. Um, any thoughts on why that may be or why it appealed to you as that first real scary villain that pops up besides the big storm? Um, wait, say, what was the plague doctor you were talking about? The guy with like the beak. Oh, yeah. I've noticed him, that imagery in a bunch of places, but it's kind of made this flip to be an evil character. Um, yeah, I don't think that there was any real thought behind it other than, um, I just like the idea of, um, 
I like the idea of a character who is so into trying to look like a bird um, and like, you know, like kind of being a little weird and, and just thinking like, oh, if I put this like skull mask on and like sew feathers to my coat and like, you know, hold like a claw, like, you know, just like a weird, crazy person who's like, so, you know, it's like a, it's like a one, they're taking cosplay to like ultimate levels, which is like, <laughs> I'm going to try to be this person, you know? Uh, I think there was also a funny character on, um, there was also a funny character on Always Sunny in Philadelphia who <laughs> that made me laugh, which is like a girlfriend of one of the characters, and like she loved cats so much, and then she went and got like plastic surgery to try to like make herself look like a cat. <laughs> it was so gross and funny that I was like, you know, there was something cr- so crazy about leaning in, into something like that. But really, it was just more about peppering the world with really interesting looking characters. I don't know that there was much thought, deeper <laughs> thought than like, let's make a real cool character. And I think I told Jorge like, oh, let's just make this guy think that he's like some sort of bird character. The, I love it. The, the the characters and the world and everything that we've seen so far in the first couple issues, it, it feels very reminiscent of Wizard of Oz to an extent. Do you think that you're drawing from your experience working on those books to in, in, here? Um, it's hard to say. Like that's the interesting thing is, um, uh. The interesting thing is the the Oz thing has come up a lot, and I I'll be honest, I didn't think about it while it was mm. going like, oh, here's Oz, and now I'm going to play off that. Yeah, um, I think Oz plays off of a lot of traditional things in in those kind of story time, which is interesting too, right? Because I think a lot of people take the, I mean, you take the tornado of it, and then you're like, well, I'll play with the tornado, but that's just a Midwestern staple, right? Um, you know, that's just a that's just a, that's a thing that happens here, um, <laughs> and then. Past that, the tornado to me, like in Oz, the tornado acted as the the threshold, right? That was like kind of like the threshold device that they used in The Wizard of Oz, which was to take Dorothy from her normal life and take her to the to 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 go learn all her lessons and everything. Um, where the tornado here, while it might be the it might be the thing that drives him towards him taking you know crossing his threshold into the, the, the adventure that lies ahead of him. The tornado in Middle West is much more, uh, I'm actually using the tornado way more literally in that, um, you know, tornadoes are these insane rage-filled beings that come out of nowhere, uh, level a town, um, and then disappear without you realizing it happened. Um, you know, where things can be sunny and, uh, you know, we, if you've lived in the Midwest at all, you've probably been in a, in an experience at some point in your life where the sun was out and 38 seconds later, um, it looks like Armageddon's happening outside <laughs> your house and then a tornado comes through, levels the town next to yours. And then within 18 minutes, it's sunny again. Yeah. Um, and, and then you, for the next two months, you know, you are hosting or, or taking part in charity events to rebuild a town. Um, and and that that's much more of where the tornado comes in here. And obviously in that first issue where we're dealing with Abel and Abel's dad's anger and things like that is we're really, I was using it much more literally in, in a way to say represent like this big force of nature, which is sometimes I feel what parents can be to kids or, or, or what anger can translate to in any of us, which is these weird forces of nature that pop out of nowhere. We, we forget to control it. And then, uh, then we spend months later trying to rebuild what we, what we, what we tore down. Um, so on that front, it wasn't as much, I mean, I definitely can see where the Oz connection would be obviously I worked on Oz for six years, yeah. um, and then I think there's also just the 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 classic journey that that kids go on. Um, uh, but yeah, as far as that, I think that's where to me the ties stop. Um, in that you know I still think Abel's journey is much different than what a Dorothy's was, um, and you know and again Dorothy's journey was still very much uh, inspired by Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland and these were different types of journeys each of the each of those characters had different kind of goals and journeys so yeah I mean I definitely think that uh, there's some ties there in tradition but as far as that I really wasn't sitting down I mean I think there's a lot of other uh, journey quest stories that were probably way more in my in my heart at the time than, than Oz was yeah 
we've we've talked to a number of people who, like you, um, work in different parts of the industry. I guess you know they they work on both licensed properties for DC or Marvel, but then they also have their own stories at places like Image. Um, and right. I, and what appeals to you about crossing that line and being and being in two different sides of the industry? I guess. Um. Well, it's just nice to. Um, it's nice to go out and play with toys that um, that everybody loves already, and that you that I may have grown up loving. Um, it's nice to go play pretend with those toys, uh, and 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 learn about the business and learn about the craft and um, collaborate with you know editors and learn more about storytelling and all this kind of stuff. Um, but then there's nothing like turning that corner and then sitting in a room and having no boss um, or no, you know, no, um, you know, standards or practices or, you know, no, uh, just no restraints. You can literally make up what you want. And there's, there's something pure. They're both, they're both versions of um, playing with toys, right? Right. Like working at Marvel or DC, that's like going over to your friend's house and going into their room and you just see all their really cool toys. And they're like, yeah, you can come here and play. Well, don't, you can just look at that one that don't <laughs> that, that one's not to be played with, but just look at that one. These you could play with. These are all kind of like you could do whatever you want with these. I've had these for a while. You know, so there's like there's like a lot of versions of what you could do with somebody else's toys. And then there's but there's nothing quite like going back home and 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 just going down in your room or going up your room and be like, Oh man, I'm gonna bury my stormtrooper and I'm gonna find him after the snow melts and I'm gonna you know, I'm gonna throw my X-wing off the roof or whatever. I can do whatever I want with my toys, and I can break it, and I can glue it back together, or whatever. Um, so, th- yeah, that's to me. They're both fun. Like both of those are great experiences, but they're they're definitely wholly unique to each other. Yeah. So, with I Hate Fairyland and Middle West and Bully Wars, is that a direction that you're consciously moving in? Or are you trying to do more of that, playing with your own toys? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I'll, like, the, I absolutely want more things that I do on my own. Um, but, but, abs- but also absolutely not ever making any grand statements of what I will be doing or won't be doing. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've all watched people be like, well, never doing this again, or I'm only <laughs> doing this. And you're like, well, that lasted about six months. <laughs> um, uh, comic books are too crazy, right? Like this business is so fluid and like sometimes it's at all time high and sometimes it's at a low and sometimes it's this and sometimes it's that. So it's, for me, it's always best just to stay pretty nimble um, and put as many irons and as many fires as I can and, and see what works and what doesn't and and just keep exploring kind of storytelling and having fun and working with people and, and uh, you know, just let, let everybody else kind of decide what how, how all this pl- plays out. Yeah. What's what's interesting is that those three books, those three you know independent creator owned whatever you want to call them, they all target a different age audience. And mm-hmm. I, I was wondering, was that by design, or is that just how the stories played out? I think it's just how they played out. Um, I mean, I hate Fairyland was definitely something that I wanted to do because I was you know I'm and I I love I love all those fantasy stories of kids you know in weird worlds, but I also love Tank Girl, mm-hmm. uh, you know so. Uh, I hate Fairyland was a really big kind of like my doing what I love to do, but adding a lot of tank girl in there. Yeah. Um, just kind of funky, badass, you know, little girl just that kicks a lot of ass. Um, <laughs> I have laughed uh, so hard reading that book. I have fallen off furniture. <laughs> Thank you. That means a lot to me because especially writing comedy, man, sometimes like I write it and think like, this is pretty funny. And then about an hour later, I'm like, I don't, maybe it's not funny. <laughs> um, it's funny. So thank you so much. Uh, so really, that was just again another thing where I just decided, like, all right, this is the thing I want to tell now. Um, I actually thought it wouldn't work. I didn't think people would be down with it. I thought it was going to look like look like a kid's book and not be a kid's book, and people were going to be confused. And this is the Wizard of Oz guy, and this is this guy, and this <laughs> guy, and that whatever. Um, that ended up working. And then Bully Wars was something that I had really come up with about ten years ago, and I was going to do it as a graphic novel about ten years ago, and I kind of put it to the side and. Uh, but then when me and Aaron Conley started talking about doing something, we pulled I pulled that back out and just you know kind of dusted that off and reformed it and added some stuff to 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 make Aaron happy um, and make him feel like he was really invested and um, and so 
that came and so that just was you know that just happened to be that because really Aaron and I were going to do a, a we were going to write it we were going to do a book that was a bully wars first we actually were going to do something we actually came up with an idea started talking about it got really excited about it he started doing some sketches for it and then um and then uh one weekend a show dropped on Netflix and we everybody in the world watched it and then I called him on Monday and it was like well um we have to do something else because <laughs> things just happened and uh we we can't do it like it was basically like a like a little bit wackier you know kind of really? comedy. yeah it was like a very stranger things-esque type thing so we we're like well can't do that oh, and no. that's kind of that's kind of when we were like i was like well i i do have this other book that i've you know kind of had on the back burner for a really really long time if you want to try and so that's kind of where blue wars came from um, so that was just by happenstance age age bracket there, and I said, well, I always knew that I wanted this kind of be more all ages, kind of diary would be kid kind of age group, right? Um, and then I would say uh, Middle West was not not something that I thought about with age group as much as I just thought about tone, and it was like, you know, Middle West is going to be my first book, um, you know, because it's a lot of heavier personal stuff kind of laced into the fantasy stuff um you know it was the first one where i was like okay i'm, I'm very intentionally this is not a comedy i mean there's going to be comedy there's going to be laughs in there i think because i can't help but have two characters mm-hmm. fuck each other um and bust you you know give each other the business but um this is my first one where i was you know that wasn't going to be the goal of it so other than that i didn't know the age i didn't really have an idea of what the age group was um i would say bully wars is the only one that i very intentionally was like okay i'm going to write it like this i'm going to keep it within these boundaries and make sure that i can get this you know if we could get it in the schools or libraries and possibly even classic or whatever we could do that but everything else i just kind of make and then I kind of let everybody else determine what's okay. Like even with Fairyland, I put mature on it because you know I I, I knew that it could mistakenly be picked up, sure, um, and thought one thing, but I always still made it safe enough to where you know I've had a, you know there's a there's a doctor who's you know well at the time her 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 kid was nine when they started reading it and it's their favorite book to read together. And, you know, so it's, you know, I still view that as a weird all ages book. It's just, you you have to have a really dope parent (laughs) to make that an all ages book. Or really dope kids who are accepting of that, right? Exactly. (laughs) Um, Last question, then I'll let you go. But Middle West, I'm assuming we're going to see more of this father son dynamic between Abel and his dad. Um, I'm assuming that that's not over with in the first two issues, but um, you yourself as a son, as a father, um, mm-hmm. I'm sure you see yourself on both sides of that story, but you know, personally, like what's the most important thing you've learned about being a father? Um, it's that um, a kid, kids come how they come, right? right. Like I can, I could teach him. I could teach him things. Um, I can, you know, tell him how I've done stuff or whatever. But they come how they come. You know, we have two kids, and we do the same thing for both of them, and they're vastly, vastly different human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so, what I've come, what I've realized most, and 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 you know, uh, probably more than likely, we'll we'll cover this at some point in some book, if not this one. But um, what I've, I think what I've learned the most is. We, as a parent, it's probably more important that we come to them and try to find their ground, like their baseline, instead of, for example, growing up, you know, being a weird artsy kid, um, you know, and having a little bit more of a manly, you know, jockey, you know, sports dad. um, It was a little, always a little bit more about like, hey, you're way different than me you should come closer to who I am, right? Mm-hmm. Like right. be more responsible like me, come get the jobs that I'm getting, like come do this. This is how you're supposed to be. Um, you're like that, but you're supposed to be like this. And I, you know, I have, uh, you know, a son who, as he's getting older, realizing like, wow, we're very different people. Like he and I are very, very different people, but it's my job to figure out how I fit into who he is, you know, and not, not, 
be uh, frustrated or try to rewrite his programming to make him closer to who I am uh, simply because I'm older and I've figured things out and I have this and life's working out for me or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it, even though sometimes it's, it's, it's insanely frustrating, right? Because anytime you have two opposing uh, forces, uh, it's very, it's frustrating that you're, that the two things that, you know, the puzzle pieces aren't clicking or are fitting together snugly. Um, but the thing that I keep realizing, like, oh, it's my job to make my puzzle piece fit into his puzzle, not the reverse. Right. Because that's all that's going to do is just cause him a lifetime of, uh, or any of our kids or her or whatever, that's just going to cause them a lifetime of anxiety and frustration and hate and all the type of things where there's like, you know, somebody else asking you to be somebody you're not or be something you're not is never a good thing. I I, th- I don't think so. Um, yeah, I've spent most of my time trying to give myself the tools to be able to, you know, go like I wouldn't do it like this. Um, I don't see it like this. I'm not interested in this or any of these things, right? And but saying like that doesn't actually matter because this little kid, um, you know, this is his whole world right now, and his world is very small. And it's only exists of these things, so it's so super easy for me to set myself aside and dive into his little world or his little head, and, and just try to try my best to be uh, what he needs from me to make him the best version of him. Uh, and I'm saying that because I have boys, but um, yeah. you know, best version of him that he can be. Um, and, and through the process, you know, learn different things about me. Like it's going to make me a better person as well. I mean, I, I've often said that parenting. Um, is way more about me learning than it is about me teaching, <laughs> um, you know, uh, which is, you know, that's probably the big, big lesson there too. This has been the great, big, beautiful podcast. You can find us online at the and on Twitter and Facebook at the podcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care.